Hey everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and here is my co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we are excited about Intel's earnings. Woo-woo! Yeah. Do you we... think Intel is actually excited about their earnings? Or is it just us? <laughs> I, I think it it's probably no one, actually, because Intel announcing its shift away from the, the PC marketplace, which we all knew it had to do, they said they would lay off 12,000 people, which mm. is a not lot. Good. Not so, good. Not good. Good luck for those people. And let's talk about their Internet of Things revenue, because that's <laughs> one of the places they're banking. Yeah, it is. Um, in fact, it's their highest growth area out of all their lines of business. Um, as you said, they're kind of, I don't want to say getting away from the PC market, but I mean, they're obviously putting less emphasis on it with other areas of opportunity. So out of uh, $13.7 billion in revenue, they still took in $7.5 billion in their client computing group. It's down a bit, but that's okay. But what's up is Internet of Things. The Internet of Things group revenue had $651 million, which is up 4% sequentially and up 22% year over year, which is good. And Intel actually even calls it out saying this is their big growth area and where they are investing for their future. It is. And actually, earlier this week, I met with Rose Schooler, who's the head of well, Intel has many heads of things. She's in charge of the kind of data center enterprise kind of horizontal platform for IoT for Intel. So think about mm-hmm. like everything to do with the enterprise and big businesses. She has a colleague who deals with things like the Intel's wearables, drones, that kind of thing. And together they coordinate on roadmaps. There was a lot of corporate speak at the meeting, but the general theme that Intel's trying to do and bring out is they recognize that they have a lot of technology, especially on the back end with regards to cloud data processing and security. And they're trying to bring that to a user base. Now, Rose is a really honest person. So she basically told me, she's like, look, we are trying to get to like 50% reuse rate when we go into a mm. corporate, you know, a corporate client. Mm-hmm. And we're just not there yet. And she's right. Right now, if you're doing an enterprise level IoT kind of deployment where you're trying to, you know, automate your factory, or maybe you're automating your building, or I don't know, you could do all kinds of things now with it. But any of those are still highly custom jobs that require systems integrators. And that's just not going to be a business. I mean, it'll mm-hmm. be a type of business, but it's not the kind of business that we're going to see huge advantages from. So Rose and I talked about getting to that kind of scalable, reusable era in the enterprise internet of things. Mm -hmm. And Intel's goal is platforms, standards groups, and their technology stuff. So in in getting developers on board. Mm -hmm. So that's that. I don't know if that really helps. It's not a bad message. It's actually quite good from Intel's point of view. They're they're banking on more than their silicon, which is great. Yeah. Well, they have to now. I mean, they do. No, no question about that. And they're they're definitely recognizing the big trends in the industry. So it's it's really just a question of are companies going to go with their stuff or are companies going to go with, you know, IBM, which is also trying to do this or GE or, you know, you can go to Honeywell if you're mm-hmm. in certain businesses. So that's probably the real question, which I think will make things really interesting in the next 10 years. Yeah, it's it's almost funny to look back at some of the big computer slash platform companies from 30 years ago, how, you know, the PC really helped make them. And now they're struggling in a sense, but they are pivoting and reinventing themselves and shifting assets and, and investments. I mean, and they have to, as we just said, but it's it's just kind of interesting from a historical perspective, having grown up in that era, you know, when when they were all up and coming and big. You're watching it happen again. 
Which, which is another way of saying I'm getting old, but yes. Well, okay. But you're not getting old. You're becoming better. Okay. Okay. I, I, I can go with that. In other chip news, there is a Zigbee acquisition. So Zigbee chipmaker Greenpeak was purchased by Corvo, which is not necessarily a household name, but they make amplifiers and RF components for a variety of products, including cell phones and things like that. I think there's actually some silicon of theirs in the uh, device, uh, the Echo and other things. Hmm. So it's, again, not a household name, but what does this mean? It basically means that we're going to start seeing, I think, a consolidation around radio technologies. And Zigbee is a good bet because it's also, it's on the same protocol radio layer as Thread. Mm -hmm. So my guess is Corvo sees an opportunity here. They're already in this space, especially at the component level. And frankly, for the Internet of Things, a lot of the radio stuff is probably going to be kind of more at the component level over mm -hmm. time. So this is a good move for the Zigbee ecosystem, I think. Well, I mean, Corvo is betting on it being big for the Zigbee ecosystem. Will it be? I don't know. But it's interesting. I, just looking at raw numbers, Greenpeak has shipped over 100 million Zigbee chips in the smart home market, which is wow. I mean, just wow. That's a lot. Oh, their chip is inside the Comcast RF remote. So instead of using infrared, mm. the, so the Comcast Xfinity remote uses their chip, which is why they've shipped so many. Or so one it's, reason. it's okay. So it's a wireless, not an infrared, and it uses Zigbee. Okay. Which is great because, mm. you know, all the times when you're like, you install a home audio system and they're like, oh, mm -hmm. you've got to put a screen in here. Open your cabinet. Yeah. RF, you or don't. A, yeah, we get an extender so you can have a little sensor out there for your IR remotes. Yeah, I, that's those days are over, I think. So, yes. And Greenpeak and I guess Corvo is betting on that. So in, in some ways, it might be bad for the market. Like if you're a big radio company and you're like, hot diggity, like Silicon Labs. <laughs> if I were Silicon Labs, I'd be like. Oh man, what do I have to offer other than just this base component level? Cause that's, that's a different world of chips than, mm. you know, being higher up in the stack or yeah. in the value chain. Yeah. Can we talk about chips uh, a little bit more just real quick? Always. I think, well, yeah, who, who am I talking to here? Come on. Just before the show, you shared some interesting information with me about a chip in your smart bulb. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a Zigbee chip. Oh, is it a Zigbee chip? Well, gee, that's an even better segue. What the heck happened to your light bulb? Okay, so what happened is... <laughs> <laughs> just just read your tweet. All right, so... Just oh, read the tweet. I think that says it all. The tweet does say it all. Sadly, I've lost the tweet. Aaron. I have it in front of me. I can read it if you'd like. No, I'll read my own tweet. You should, you because... You can hear it in my voice. It's pain. Oh, people, get ready. Get ready. All right, so here's the tweet. The 20-year lifespan on my smart bulb met the two-year lifespan of the radio inside. Now I have a dumb bulb that will last 18 more years. So... What the heck happened well <laughs> essentially this the light still works but the radio doesn't which means when i talk to my lights now for example uh -huh. using the echo i will say turn on kitchen and well actually i'll say turn off kitchen mm -hmm. and everything but one light bulb turns off mm -hmm. it's and you're sure you're sure it's not just something set up in the with the hub or anything it's definitely the bulb like you switch sockets or any just... i actually reset all the light bulbs and it didn't do the reset which there is how you i know go. yep so <laughs> so that's good so you paid like 40 or 50 bucks for a, a uh, basic bulb so on the good news side this is the original 15 dollars ge link bulb <sighs> That's not too bad. Okay. So I, I spent $15. So seven, it, it was actually less than two years old when I really, mm -hmm. I realized this now, 
So basically I got about 18 months maybe of use, maybe even just a year. Mm. And this actually happened to two lights that I got originally and I returned them. So they had failed early on in the process, but everything mm. else had been working super smoothly for the last year or so. And then boom. And I don't have the packaging anymore because, you know, after a year you're kind of yeah. like, yeah. Eh. It's just clutter at that point. So I'm going to have to take that light bulb out. I'm probably going to put in an Osram. Yay. Yay. And I see just, what I've happens. had good luck with them. That's all. No, no, I have an Osram. You know, I, I even have an Osram light switch uh, that I'm currently well, not using. I don't. So you could. I could send you mine. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. So, yes. And this gets to a bigger problem for the Internet mm -hmm. of Things. We've mm -hmm. talked about it. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of these things are installed in your house. They're designed to last a really long time, but the components inside of them, you know, they're, they're tech, they're hardware. Yeah. They're probably not going to last that long. So how do we, how do we deal with that? Yeah. I mean, I've got a closet full of dead devices, um, which I really need to go bring to the electronics recycling event next time they have it. You know, some things, computers, tablets, whatever it may be, some of them lasted, you know, five, six, seven years, some of them lasted two before some chipset went bad or some something happened. And yeah, when you're talking about things you're putting in your house that you expect to last a long, long time, whether it's a switch, a bulb, a doorbell, whatever, it's, that's a problem. And so the, the next problem that I'm about to deal with hmm. is it's also a pain to unhook these from a system. So when I'm going to hmm. take that bulb out, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to it's not as simple as just replacing a bulb and everything's going to work the same. I'm going to have to mm -hmm. tag that bulb to either Hue or the Wink so it will talk back to the Echo. Then I've got and to do this discovery. group it and yeah. discovery. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, these, these are probably really first world problems, but they're real problems. So, yeah, no, they're, I think they're first world early adopter problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And so that's one thing. I will say that I, I did a, I talked to a company named Deco, which, I did profile in my newsletter, but if you miss that, that's okay, because this company is selling hot swappable light switches. They're actually like little boxes they're, with a light modular. switch. Yeah. They're, 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 they're modular switches that fit into boxes. The boxes are wired to your electri electrical system, but the switch itself kind of can pop out and, and be replaced very easily. Exactly. And they're selling these to builders, and the idea is that you know new homes will have basically smart bulbs wired in. And the cool thing is the the founder of this company and I were talking and he's he explained that it's hot swappable and he went with the like very modular system because he knew that a lot of the technologies that we have today are not going to be the technologies you're going to want 5 or 10 years down the road. Right, different technologies, um protocols, wireless whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So this this makes a lot of sense as anyone who can tell as anyone who's installed like their own light switches it's yeah it's a pain to wire those things. Well, and it's funny you say that because for my 2010 installation of the Insteon stuff, I still have three Insteon switches hardwired in my house, even though I'm not running an Insteon system at all. I'm just using them as regular switches obviously, but there's still a little LED on there to tell if the light is on or off or should be on or off. And I just didn't want to be bothered unwiring them. But what Deco is doing is, okay, don't unwire. There's nothing to unwire. Just pop in a different module. Right. If you decide like, oh, I'm no longer a Z-Wave kind of person because yeah. this, this is a loser standard. I'm going to go with thread. 
Don't don't upset the Z-Wave people. I will not. (laughs) Deco's selling this strictly to uh, contractors at this point? Strictly to builders. It's actually a prototype thing right now. Well, Uh, I mean, because what's going to... They're putting it... It's a switch box, an electrical mm -hmm. box, the the shell, the frame that sits inside the wall that you Mm -hmm. stick the electric electrical wiring and all through right right so it's it's a specialized electric box to accept the modular switches right so you could i mean if you're doing like a a refit a retrofit of your house Mm -hmm. what are are those called remodel that's it yes a remodel an expensive hellish nightmare if you're doing that you could probably you know try for this but i'd wait a little longer because right now they're still testing this out with builder community in Portland. Makes sense. Makes sense. I would be interested as an end user consumer because I would, I like to swap out different things and whatnot. Well, not the instant ones, obviously, but this looks interesting because their switch, the hot swappable switch has a capacitive glass touchscreen. And that they have three different kinds right now. One is like a basic dimmer. One Uh is, I think a couple different options. And the one is a four, you could program four things in it, Hmm. four options. Like, the switch that you want to the the room that you're the light switch is in but also like a button for controlling the whole house and turning it off Mm -hmm. and again i think it's a smart way to go about it it's not as fancy as a lot of the light switches that we have today Mm -hmm. but i think the idea of being modular and thinking about like the most mainstream consumer is probably the way to go and being future-proof in terms of the technologies to an extent, like they're not interested in tying these light switches to, you know, your HVAC system or anything like that today. That's that's not something they want. Although builders are really big, they're looking for ways to offer customers services that mm-hmm. they can charge for their lifetime in the home, right? So you could see your builder buying into Deco plus something else and then creating a software for your home and then being like, here's your home OS. You pay us $10 a month mm-hmm. and boom. No. No. I I know you won't do it, but no. <laughs> it's something to think about. I already thought about it, and no. <laughs> <laughs> I reject that. Sorry, I'm not subscribing to my house. Well, you know, a friend... So I, I'll give you an example. My sister-in-law lives in a house that has pest control built into the walls. So it's kind of like those... You remember those old-school indoor vacuum... Cl- or yeah. in-wall vacuum cleaner the systems? The whole house, yeah, in-wall. In yep. yep. I don't know what those things are called now, but... They have something like that where the pest control company comes in and they basically connect the pest control delivery thing to like this tube that comes and it runs throughout their whole wall, all the walls. And the assumption is the home builder got a cut of whatever, you know, company is delivering that service to the people who buy the home. So it may not be as simple as a subscription to your home. It may be like a cut to your new mm. Cedia installer guy. I don't know. Mm. I know you still don't like it. Not a fan. It's just me. (laughs) I'm also a little leery about having, you know, poisons pumped through my wall, but that's okay. Yeah. And leery you should be. Leery leery you should be. So while we're kind of on this like random everywhere subject, because we are, there are no segues (laughs) Yeah, we are today. I found another use for the Amazon Tap. So Tap is the speaker. Wait, did did you get one? No. But I ran into a person well, who has one. I was going to say, that's really good that you found a use for it then if you don't have one. No, no. That's- I'm still not sure I'd buy one, but here it goes because I thought this was worthwhile. Hmm. The tap, which is the portable Amazon Echo-like device that you have to touch to talk to as opposed to just talk to. It's not always listening. Mm-hmm. This guy 
bought the sling because there's a little rubber sling that you could put the tap in. Yep. And he actually gave it to his kids and his kids actually run around the house carrying it with them. And basically they, they bring their music with them and they bring it for like telling jokes and whatever else they want to do with the echo, which <laughs> he was like, they love that thing. Oh no, I, I would imagine it's a, it'll keep the kids busy for hours. Absolutely. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a new way to think about it. He also told me though that his Echo actually broke. He was one of the early people who Ooh. bought an Echo. Mm-hmm. And one day it died and his whole family was bereft, except for mm-hmm. his kids with their taps. And he called Amazon and Amazon actually, they were like, okay, we see that it's not on. Let's send you to, they sent him to a link and mm-hmm. the link basically had him reorder a power supply. It came like the next day. Mm-hmm. They plugged it in to see if that worked. And if it didn't work, they were going to send him a new Echo. Hmm. That's impressive. So there's your echo. If it breaks, yeah. let Amazon know because apparently they've got some. They're either getting a lot of really good data from this thing, or they uh, just uh, yeah. don't want angry customers. Just I'm yet. sure they are. After discovering the tap stuff, let's go on to things you discovered, which is the Internet of Clothing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had something in my hand. I thought you were going to talk about that. Let me put this down. Yes, yes, yes. So. Avery Dennison. Now, there's a name that uh, I wouldn't normally equate with technology. Nothing against them. It's just when I think of them, I think of labels, uh, office supply type labels. You go into Staples, Office Depot, whatever. Look, there's Avery Dennison labels for everything. Well, there really is for everything now because Avery Dennison and everything are going to put 10 billion pieces of apparel into the world of IoT with smart labels, basically. Uh, this is kind of interesting and not something that I saw coming at all. No, I thought if we were going to get smart clothing, it was going to be through like weird fabrics like Project Jacquard or there was a new mm-hmm. antenna actually that was announced earlier this week that it's obviously research, but could also like let things communicate wirelessly through the internet. But this, this is soon. This is now. Mm-hmm. And let's see. Um, and I should also mention that everything is, it's a UK firm and it's, Everything with an E, but no other vowels, if right. that makes sense. Starts with an E, and then it's all consonants. Yep. So, let's Everything. see. <laughs> it's, it's primarily, I think it's, right now it's primarily about authenticity and preventing mm-hmm. counterfeiting. Yeah, and I've, and I've seen labels uh, attached to certain things. Like I bought my Liverpool jersey or, you know, an Arizona Cardinals jersey, and it comes with a little authentication hologram with a number. And if you want to check authenticity, you can go online and punch the number and all that, but gets rid of all of the number punching and, and so on. Yes. And, you know, there's actually another company, ThinFilm, that is working with um, Jack Daniels and other liquor manufacturers to prevent like counterfeit liquor. So they're actually putting labels on alcohol, bottles of alcohol to prevent, to like show mm-hmm. authenticity. So that's a similar thing where the retailer would scan it. So what's kind of happening here is they've created, they've basically created a platform for this. So they're mm-hmm. like, here's how the label is. Here's the hardware that you're going to use to read the label. And they're hoping to connect with third party applications that might allow you to do other things like, I don't know, reorder something if your favorite white shirt with the... <laughs> smart label gets stained it could be like boom checking inventory we got one shipped out mm-hmm. so i don't know i thought this was kind of cool i think it is kind of cool because it's again not from a company that i would traditionally have even thought about getting into this space it's not actually that crazy they didn't have to invest in like crazy stuff they're doing it no. with well, a they QR do it with code. The, i was just gonna say they do it with inventory tracking now yeah you know at the, at the you know f- from the manufacturing standpoint but now it's coming out to the consumer side 
So I, I think this is kind of fun. I don't know how we're, if we're going to just see it like as a counterfeit prevention method or if it's just going to be like, hey, inventory management, which actually is a huge thing. And yeah, <laughs> I would be okay with if it meant things were in stock. I mean, for me, you know, there's only five Arizona Cardinals fans on the East Coast. So like if somebody has their jersey on and I have my jersey on, maybe there's an app that can tell me that they're they're right around the corner. Go have a beer with them or something. Wait, wouldn't they just like on the same day the Cardinals were actually playing? Wouldn't that be the day everyone wears their jersey? I don't just wear it then. Okay. I, I know nothing about sports. I'm a, I'm a fan, baby. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> any other Pennsylvania area Arizona Cardinals fans out there? Give me a shout out. Let Kevin know. Yeah. He, he would love that. Yeah. And if you do, uh, I doubt you will, but if you do, I will show you the little device I have in my hand right now. Ooh. What is the device that you have in your hand? Please tell it's, me it's, it's child friendly, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, you could like electrocute yourself, I suppose. But, oh, well, you know. that's everything we play with. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's child friendly. And it's, it's one of the Kickstarters that I backed that actually came through because uh, so often they don't. Nothing against the platform. I think it's great. But, uh, this is the Pine 64. Basically, it's like a Raspberry Pi. It's a 20, well, I mean, I was going to say it's a $29 computer, but it's actually, it's $15. The base price is $15. It's a small board, comes with a, a quad core ARM processor, um, half a gig of RAM, Ethernet port, HDMI, a couple USB ports and whatnot. I actually moved up to the highest end model, which was only $29. That got me. Hey, big spender. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, but seriously, for, for 29 bucks in the palm of my hand, you know, a board with, uh, the same chipset and all that, but it has two gig of RAM and it has gigabit Ethernet. All of these have 4K video output, which pretty impressive. So it's low power. Obviously it's more aligned with computing projects like the Raspberry Pi. In fact, it's very similar to that and less so with say IoT and Arduino, but. You could, and I'm still thinking about uh, once I get the uh, once I get Linux Linux installed on this uh, of using the OpenHab APIs and playing around with the the OpenHab uh, interface for smart homes to see what I can do and just run everything off this little little guy here. Oh, that's a good idea. And actually, while you're talking about the Pi, and it reminded me, What's that? we should have talked about this. Hmm. But Intel recently started shipping a dev kit that is a fifteen dollar board that features. Oh my gosh, are you ready? The Quark. So um, it's a 32 megahertz quark. Yeah, so, I think it looks just like the little board I have on my closet shelf right there that came two weeks ago. <laughs> I didn't get around to it yet. Oh, you got one of these. I did. I got the little dev the little dev kit. Yeah. I mean, in a way, this is like super behind the times because like I can buy, I think it's actually a $25 Raspberry Pi that has a 64-bit capable. Mm-hmm. It's like 1.2 gigahertz, I think. So. I believe that's right. Yeah. But this this guy is way smaller. This isn't a computing board. This is more like a little. This is sensor. more like Arduino. This, yeah, is, this is like an Arduino set. Yeah, this is bridging physical and digital, and and I have Arduino set somewhere, and then I got this, and unfortunately, I've just been busy and, and haven't taken it out of the box yet. But maybe in a week we can talk about it. I don't know. Yeah. No. I just I was excited that it was out there because we have been looking for you know Quark. Quark. And, Mm-hmm. Anything containing Curie, which is the chip on this platform. Right. So, or the module uh, on this uh, platform. As a frame of reference, I don't have the other, the, the Intel board in my hand, but um, as a frame of reference, that Intel board is about a third the size of this computer board that I have in my hand right now. And this is pretty small. I mean, I think most people probably have an idea of how big a Raspberry Pi is. This Intel board is less than half the size. It's very small. So, eensy beatsy and yep. $15. So, if you know, you're feeling like you want to play with Intel's efforts, just to see what it's got to offer after Edison, this would be what you'd look for. Okay, 
Let's talk really fast because there's a couple things that happen with Hue Lights and oh. Light Fair is coming up next week. So Yay. expect next week's show to be kind of lights fantastico. Light bulb. So we won't be complaining about lights with no radios, hopefully. Hopefully. Cross fingers. Mm. But what's happening is Philips Hue is actually, they updated their app and they did a couple things with it. One, they changed the color and we'll tell you why in a minute. Mm-hmm. And two, they upgraded their security protocols. And in doing so, they basically did a token program with their third party partners. Right. The software partners. And most, almost everybody has opted in. So they've been working on this for a while. So now what you've got is basically a much more secure way for your Hue lights to talk to any partners that also use Hue lights. So things like Hue Disco, there's a real big popular one that connects your hues to the, the Apple iTunes. I can't think of what it's called right now. Anyway, lots of things. So all of that happened. And the reason why it's happening is he was about to launch a second generation app. So that is why it changed the color. This one now is going to be gray. So your existing Hue app is going to be gray. And then your next gen Hue app is going to be, I don't know what color it's going to be, but not not gray, not gray. And you'll have the option of using either of those two. And I'm hoping this is coming soon and we'll find out more about it. But, you know, that's something to look forward to or maybe to fear. I'm not sure if you are a Hue aficionado. This is not the result of any attack, exploit, or insecurity. It's just them being proactive, right? Right. I asked Hugh. I was like, hey, did something happen? Did I miss it? And they're like, nope, (laughs) nope. We're just just trying to get things all in order, basically. Good on them. So, yeah, it is good on them because the last thing you need is to have, you know, millions of these things out there. And then the good news is that your kitchen bulb is now secure. Yes, yes, my kitchen bulb is the most secure light bulb in my downstairs. There is a, I shouldn't say it, but I will. There is a bright side to this. Oh, Kevin. Sorry. All right. Well, on that note, I think we should probably end the show. I have some great gadgets for you next week. We'll have light fair news and maybe Kevin will have started playing with open hab, but there's no pressure just yet for no you. No pressure. Yeah. I'll put it. It's right next to the, uh, the, the lock set that you sent me. The lock set. Oh man. Uh, yeah. Can't believe it. So this week's guest though, stay hmm. tuned for him. It's Don Butler, who's in charge of all of Ford's connected car platforms. So we basically talk about how to build a business for the internet of things or specifically how Ford's building it. And how they're thinking about the car of the future. It's a fun interview, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Stacy, breaking into the IoT podcast to tell you two things. The first is that I've launched a weekly newsletter devoted to the Internet of Things that you can sign up for at stacyoniot.com. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y on IoT.com. The second is that we're now accepting ads on the Internet of Things podcast. We have packages for big companies and startups. So if you are interested, please email Andrew at IOTpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. Today's guest is Don Butler, who is the Executive Director of Connected Vehicle and Services at Ford Motor Company. You guys may have heard of them. So, Don, thanks for coming on the show today. Stacey, it's great to be with you. I am super excited about this. I will confess, I don't drive a Ford, but I am really excited about all the programs that you guys have done, from the integration with the Amazon Echo to the shared leasing program that you guys just launched in Austin relatively recently. So, let's talk about what do you do on a day-to-day basis at Ford? 
So as the leader for connected vehicles within the company, I'm charged with overseeing uh, all aspects of that within our business. And so that involves the consumer and understanding, you know, what are they looking for? What kind of experiences can we deliver on the vehicle side? What kind of hardware is necessary inside the vehicle to make sure that that takes place? How do we design the software, the communication systems to take advantage of that? Then working with network providers in terms of sort of the data transport mechanisms, whether it be cellular or Wi-Fi, and then integrating that with our back-end IT systems to both deliver those services as well as to receive data from vehicles as well as facilitating remote control of vehicles. Gosh, that sounds like a lot of stuff. It keeps me busy throughout my day, for sure. (laughs) Well, okay. So let's dive right in with this idea that Ford has really kind of changed in the last, I'm going to say five years, maybe four years is kind Mm -hmm. of when I've been looking at it. Mm -hmm. You guys have really moving from, you know, thinking about, you know, attaching a phone or something, you know, working with my phone in the car in kind of the vehicle telematics to this concept of transportation as a service. And I'd love to get your sense of how has your thinking evolved? When did you guys? Yeah, I'd I'd say if, if you had to pinpoint in origin, it might go back to a talk that Bill Ford gave at Mobile World Congress a few years back in Barcelona, where he really, in a sense, took his great-grandfather's vision of um, open highways for all mankind and sort of the Model T was the single-point solution for that, affordable transportation that was available and accessible to, um, you know, to everyone. And just kind of thinking and projecting forward and looking at some of the trends that are happening in terms of globalization, in terms of urbanization, along with that globalization. And if you project forward our kind of current vehicles that are operating today, we, there's roughly a billion vehicles uh, that are on the global roads today. And if you project forward, even the growth rates of where we are, it would be, you know, another billion vehicles added by 2030. And there just, there, there just isn't the infrastructure for that. We're also looking at changing dynamics in terms of consumer preferences. And so all of that sort of looks at how this is coming together and thinking about our own business and the fact that we in a sense, kind of sell the hardware and we're beginning to shift from kind of just that hardware focus to thinking about not just the vehicle as a single point solution, not just, you know, the only way that you can benefit from a Ford is to own or or lease it, but really viewing the business as not just providing hardware, but providing mobility. From that perspective, let's talk about the hardware side and the business mm-hmm. shift, because this is Ford last year made a hundred and billion, mostly on vehicles, right? Right, right. So that is, that is A, a lot of money. B, it's a lot of vehicles. So (laughs) switching from that kind of hardware investment because there are factories and that sort of thing. And I don't think Ford's, at least in the near term, going to stop making cars. So how we are. There you go. (laughs) There are a lot of people who are going to be very excited about that. How then do you switch from making hardware and all of the investment that goes there to like adding all this other investment in software and services and still manage to, you know, make your investors happy? Absolutely. We, we need to make our investors happy. And that, you know, $149 billion of, of revenue is certainly very important to us. And, and as we kind of look at 
these emerging businesses, one thing that, that Mark has been very clear to us about, Mark, Mark Fields, our CEO, is that we cannot forget our core business. You know, the shift that we see in this inflection point that we're talking about, it will play itself out over time. And so it's not as if two years from now, you know, there aren't going to be any automotive sales as the, the projections are that we'll continue to have, you know, fairly consistent five to six percent growth as we go forward. But nonetheless, we do recognize that as we do go forward, the landscape and that matrix of revenue and earnings opportunities, it will need to shift. One perspective that we have is if you look at the kind of the core sort of, I would just say the hardware business of automotive, it's roughly $2.3 trillion of, of combined global revenue. And our share of that is roughly about 6%. That's our global market share. If you think more broadly about what we call transportation services, and, and essentially that's any way of getting around short of um, jet travel, you know, that's another $5.4 trillion of revenue, and our share of that is zero. And so if you think about it, it's this core business that we have continuing to be great at that, continuing to deliver super products that people love, that are fun to drive, great to look at, but also looking at the transportation services landscape and understanding what role, you know, could we possibly play there. Okay. And a lot of companies are trying to do this right now. So you luckily are not alone, but how do you align your company and how do you think about, you know, management structures, incentives Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. investing in these new areas? Because, you know, Ford is a huge company, but it doesn't have infinite resources. Yeah. And it is a challenge. And and I don't want to minimize it by saying, yeah, we'll just graft on these emerging opportunities. What we've done is put up what we call Ford Smart Mobility as an umbrella over each of those activities. But then we've gone a step further and said, because some of these things are going to be so different than the core business, right? Those processes that I talked about earlier in terms of what it takes to ensure 30,000 vehicle parts come together in a well-integrated, high-quality way with absolute safety and with absolute um, integrity, right? Those processes don't necessarily fit in some of these new emerging spaces because you do need to move at a much more frequent or much more rapid pace because the ability to experiment and to learn and to, in some cases, fail, right? That's okay. Um, it's not okay to fail when you're putting an airbag inside a vehicle and you got to make sure that it operates, right? It's not okay to fail there, right? And so you've got to have a rigorous process. It is okay to fail potentially even in, in the experiment, experiment in Austin and, and learning about shared leasing and learning about how do you, you know, how do you slice up uh, a lease amongst different people? How do you allocate who gets to use the vehicle? How do you make sure that that process works, right? We're going to need to learn from that. And so what we've decided to do is set up a separate limited liability corporation called Ford Smart Mobility. Jim Hackett has been named as the chairman of that entity, and he's going to be putting together his own team, beginning with the CEO and then others. There'll be some inside our core business today that will move over underneath into that entity, and there'll be Actually, probably a lot more that will come in from the outside and bringing in new ideas and bringing in new ways of thinking. And the way that that organization moves and the way that it will be constructed will be much more nimble, um, much more oriented towards innovation, experimentation, learning, moving quickly. And it's obviously going to have some investment associated with it. And we've kind of gone through 
you know, an exercise to understand what's going to be critically important for us as we go forward in our business. And fortunately, in terms of some of the things that we've been able to do in terms of cost control and efficiency and being very intentional with our core investments and looking at things on a global basis and, you know, reducing redundancies and, and driving those things that help us to be capital efficient, you know, we're able to allocate, you know, money to this new element, to these emerging opportunities and kind of set up this separate entity, separate but still connected to the core business because we want to benefit from the learnings that happen there. And there may, there may be some things that happen in that emerging business that ultimately will become part of our core business. There may be some things that happen in our emerging business that end up getting spun off into their own entities as well. But So it's separate but related, and we want to set it up in a way that we can sort of benefit from, let's just say, the stability of the mothership without being encumbered by the gravity of the mothership. So on this, as you seek to partner, as you've created this spin out, this new company for your innovation, what do you need? What kind of technologies are you guys looking for? So from a technology standpoint, in terms of the things that we think we need, certainly in connectivity and all the aspects related to connectivity and wireless communications and, and the you know the latest versions of Bluetooth and looking at things like dedicated short-range communication, so, you know, 5.9 gigahertz and, and, and that spectrum for things like vehicle-to-vehicle communication, increased computing capability uh, onboard vehicles, so more powerful microprocessors, definitely. In terms of broad categorization and some of the things that are happening in the tech, on the technology front, voice and voice-based interaction, increasingly important for us, as you can imagine, within a vehicle first from the standpoint of being safe and secure as you're operating the vehicle, continuing to operate the vehicle today and until we get to the day of fully autonomous, but voice enables you to, you know, control and interact in a way that keeps your, your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. And then in addition to those technologies, just looking at the companies that are doing things in those areas that make sense. And then from an autonomous standpoint, things like LIDAR and sensors, cameras, and being able to characterize our environment and react to it, you know, you know, in an appropriate way. So those are some of the areas that we're looking at. Got it. All right. And let's talk about some of the things you've already implemented. So, for example, you guys did this integration with the Amazon Echo, and we will not name her on the show because, you know, we don't want to set off your Echoes. <laughs> but you guys have done this, and this was great. This was at CES. Everyone was excited. Everyone was talking about the Echo at CES, so it made sense. Can you talk about why people want to connect their cars with their homes and how you think the best way to do that is? Sure. And so what, what we demonstrated at CES with Amazon was a, was a proof of concept around the Echo. And we hope to actually be launching um, a service with Amazon and with Echo later this year. And the whole idea is to just understand how are people interacting with the world around them and with their home, with their music and with their services. In addition to that, though, what attracted us to Amazon and to Echo was the network that was being built up around Echo and the uh, different skills, as it were, that we would have access to just by connecting with Amazon. And this network is a way for us to build accessibility inside the vehicle without necessarily needing to plumb each of those individual kind of lines, right? And so certainly we'll, we'll do some things with Wink and, and we'll do things with others, but if there's already a network that we can have access through Amazon Echo, then, then why not take advantage of that? 
Got it. So let's let's have some fun here. Let's talk about the future of the car because I drive a Tesla and okay. it is super fun because it's it's constantly changing, but it also took a huge learning curve for me because it is constantly changing. So every time there's a software update, for some reason, the temperature, the outside temperature moves around on the, on the display. And I'm like, Oh, now it's over here now. Oh, um, and I don't mind that, but it is a little, it's a weird to get used to having a car that, that changes. So there are things like that, that like the car of the future you know, and it can drive itself. I should, I should probably have mentioned that first. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Yep. Yep. For sure. So that feels very futuristic today, but I do think things like, you know, self-driving cars, a lot of the automatic braking kind of technologies, those things are going to feel really commonplace in a year or two. So where do you think the future of the car is going? Is it, you know, right now I've got two in my garage. I'd really love to only have one, you know, I, I can't imagine giving up a dedicated car, but I'm old. So <laughs> I don't know where does, where does this go? I think there are a number of different scenarios that, that will play out. And, and I think it will depend on, you know, what your lifestyle is and, and where you live. So, so I can foresee in urban environments, for instance, and, you know, highly congested situations that, for a number of different reasons, it, it will make sense for people to not necessarily own a vehicle, right? They will be potentially the, the biggest consumers of transportation as a service. And so one of the things that, that we're working on within that, within that context is how do we continue to deliver a Ford experience when someone doesn't necessarily own a Ford vehicle, when they may be a user or a passenger within a Ford vehicle? And that's one of the reasons that we introduced Ford Pass, which on its face looks like just another mobile app, but it's really a platform for us to deliver mobility services. And so whether that's um, using Sync Connect and, and remotely connecting with a vehicle that you happen to own and or, you know, you're traveling, but we've got your profile information. And so we understand what your commute is and we can help you uh, with the best way to get to you know, for instance, your your office on that day. And so whether it's, you know, taking a train and then a bus and then doing a shared ride or today, hey, the shared ride would be the best route for you. If you're, you know, if you're someone that lives in suburbia and you've got a family, then, you know, I, at least for the next few years, I, I, I can imagine it'll be somewhat difficult to think about swapping car seats in and out of a number of different vehicles, right? And so I yes. think the the traditional ownership or leasing model will will still be prevalent there. In all of those situations, what you'll have is vehicles that will absolutely improve and get better over time. I think there's actually a lot that we can learn from Tesla in terms of what they're doing um, with software updates. In our case, you know, we want those updates to be as seamless as possible and as non-life interrupting as possible. And we've had Josh Corman from I Am The Cavalry on the mm -hmm. show, and they did a five-star automotive safety framework back in, I think it was 2014. Mm -hmm. And it was all about protecting the car as kind of a digital asset. Right. Um, and I, I would be curious, like, has Ford kind of adopted that? Are you guys looking at that and saying, hey, we're going to take this element, but not that element? We've had a focus on security uh, for quite some time. It's, 
it's not something that we're just waking up to at this moment. Even um, even going back to you know the early days of of keyless entry, right? We've had rolling codes to protect security. Even with Sync in 2007, right? It was set up with a firewall between more of the kind of information and entertainment area of the vehicle and the communication bus, and that's separated with a physical firewall from the more important vehicle control sides like powertrain and like the chassis controls. And even as we move into this environment where certainly the threat surface, as it were, is growing in terms of increasing connections in the vehicle, both within the vehicle wirelessly and outside the vehicle uh, on a cellular basis, we are very, very conscious of putting mechanisms in place to protect the vehicle as a digital asset and, and particularly the data as, a, as an asset that must be secured as well. And we're constantly evolving and improving our systems. We're constantly looking at ways of whether it's code signing and encryption to firewalls to understanding, you know, the various attacks that have been promulgated on others and not just saying, oh, too bad for them, but looking at it and understanding exactly what happened and then going back and looking at our own systems and saying, you know, is this something that we would have been vulnerable to? Is there something that would be similar to this that would have presented a vulnerability to us? And so, Right. Plus, after they hacked those Jeeps, you know, wired hacked those Jeeps, we were like, oh. We were all over that to understand exactly what they did and how they did it. And, you know, we weren't, again, susceptible to that particular attack, but um, it did cause us to look at some things that that we're doing and, and the way that we've engineered some of our solutions and just add that extra bit of rigor in terms of um, of controls and, and of some things that we could look at to say, hey, we weren't vulnerable to this one, but you know what? Here's some things that we could look at and some things that we could change. Yeah, there's probably no security by obscurity for you guys with your your billion cars on the road. (laughs) Price of success. Okay. Yeah, true. So as we move into a connected era and you guys are viewing mobility and transportation as a service, what is Ford's competitive advantage? How does that shift from, I'm assuming it's shifting from design and manufacturing to maybe data, but how do you guys kind of view this? And- yeah, I, I think our biggest asset actually is our brand, and it's the trust that we have uh, with the Ford brand and with the relationship, actually, that consumers have formed with us going back more than 100 years. The challenge and the opportunity that we have is to turn those sort of infrequent yet kind of explicit references and, and thoughts about Ford at the time that potentially I buy my vehicle or at the time that I service my vehicle, for instance, to a couple of different facets. Number one, the more than 900 hours a year that people spend inside their vehicle and the opportunity that we have to improve that experience, to make it a more delightful experience, and also to learn and gather data from those experiences, again, with the informed consent of our customers to help us not only improve the vehicle, but again, improve the things that they do in the vehicle, right? Helping you interact with your home remotely through Amazon, for instance. As well, looking at how can we become part of a person's life if they don't necessarily own a Ford. And so with Ford Pass as a mobility application, understanding how we can facilitate transportation, even if you don't own a Ford, because we think, again, our biggest asset is actually our brand. It's the trust that we have in our brand and it's what we've been able to deliver and really kind of, you know, relate to consumers on that basis. Awesome. All right. Well, Don, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I have learned a lot. Stacy, it's been terrific to speak with you. 
That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week. In the meantime, please sign up for my newsletter. Thank you.